Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 165. I recorded it last year in Nashville, Tennessee with my dear friend, Molly O'Neill, who was in town from New York for a, um, a conference, for the story conference. Molly is a literary agent. She is with The Root Literary Agency. Uh, she's formerly a book editor. And she's smart as a whip, super funny, fun. Uh, I dig her immensely. And it was really cool that she took some time out of her schedule to sit down and talk with me. Um, what I really love about this episode, uh, whether you love books or you're looking for new books to read, or if you're, you know, not really into books, but maybe you're willing to dip your toe in and you're just looking for some uh, suggestions, this episode definitely. Oh my gosh, we talk about so many great books. She also talks about the process, which she looks for in a writer, um, all sorts of stuff. It was a really interesting episode. Pardon the occasional dings that happen. Uh, I think her phone was on because, again, she was working for this conference, so she had to be in the loop. Uh, it only happens a couple times, but uh, please forgive us for that. Uh, we reference a book, Franny and Zoe, or Zoe, I still don't know how to say that, that uh, from childhood reading, and I wasn't sure who wrote it, she wasn't sure who wrote it, we couldn't remember. It's J.D. Salinger, so that's the answer to that one. Uh, as usual, there are a ton, this one, so many links, uh, parents, Teenagers, young adult reader, people, sci-fi lovers, uh, fiction, nonfiction, all of the books <laughs> we talk about, I'm going to put on heyhumanpodcast.com. Man, we referenced a lot of books and it's great. Uh, now, if you're not into books and you think, oh my gosh, it's going to be so boring. It's not. We talked about really interesting things and her philosophies and my philosophies and um, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was cool. So hopefully you will too. Uh, as I mentioned, links page, heyhumanpodcast.com. You can always email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. Don't forget about the Amazon portal there on the main page because it's an ad-free podcast. When you shop Amazon, if you go through that portal, uh, it just helps support Hey Human. And uh, that's a great thing. You can find me on social medias, Hey Human Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And then, of course, my personal social media is Susan Ruthism, S U S A N R U T H I S M. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Man, oh man, how do I keep track of it all? I do not know. Uh, SusanRuth.com, just for me, myself, and I. And uh, oh, if you happen to be on iTunes, please rate and review Hey Human. It means the world to me. It's really super helpful. Um, and I appreciate it. Okay, let's uh let's get this show on the road. Here we go. Molly O'Neill. Hi. Welcome to Hey Human Podcast. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> like the pregnant pause. I don't know what to say now. Uh, okay, you uh, are a dear friend. You're from New York, visiting Nashville for the Big Story Conference. I am. So that's exciting. I am. I have lived in New York for 16 years this summer, which is starting to be longer, very soon will be longer than I've lived anywhere else, which is kind of 
crazy, but I grew up in Texas. So whenever I come to Nashville, my internal Southern accent wants to come out and dance. <laughs> it's so funny. I, you seem like a New Yorker to me. I'm, I'm a... I don't know if that's insulting. A, that's meant a chameleon, to be, Not that being will. a Texan is bad or... <laughs> wait, so you said Texas? Texas, New York. Yeah, Texas. Yeah. 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 Um, I like Texas very much. I've never, I say this now, every, every podcast where I interview a Texan, I say this, and it is true that every Texan I have met, I have thoroughly enjoyed. We're good people. I mean, it seems to be the case. Indeed. You have a little New York skyline over here for you. Your I pleasure. do. Hello, New York. <clears throat> or at least my weird brain's adaptation of what <laughs> New York it's looks so like. It's so artsy in here. Yeah, I tried to make it warm and inviting. We are in the new podcast booth. So shout out to my friend Ryan who helped me put this all together. He built it. I really had nothing to do with that part, but um, I decorated and put, picked out carpets and couches and things. It's very cozy. It kind of feels like what when you're a kid mm -hmm. and you dream about like what it would be like to do a job. Like this is what you imagine. Yeah, it would be like to yeah. like go to work every day. When I when I was putting everything together in here, I thought this reminds me of when you were little and you'd make the blanket and pillow yeah forts. it's almost a pillow fort but it's like cooler yeah thank you <laughs> that was the vibe i was going for it was pillow fort so i'm glad that that aesthetic is showing absolutely. through <laughs> absolutely so you have a fascinating career you are uh well you started as a literary agent so i actually started so i'm an editor um, even before that. Oh my goodness, let's I've go back. I've worn many hats. Okay. Um, so I moved to New York with the goal of getting into the world of children's books. Um, and I figured out I wanted to do that about halfway through college. I was a creative writing major, which at my university, I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, go Catholic. I don't know what your, what your... I mean, it's a Catholic. Yeah, Golden Eagle is their mascot, although they what changed it? it. Golden Eagle? It's not that anymore. Oh, okay. I can't remember what it is now. They changed <laughs> it. Edit that part out. No, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I, I was in college a whole two years before I realized that we had a football team. So <laughs> there you go. Um, but in college, I was a creative writer major which they had three different tracks that you could be if you were an English major you could be the like I'm going to be a college professor and teach Brit lit and so you take all those like very classic you know the the course on the fairy queen and the Shakespeare courses mm -hmm. or you could do the track that was like I'm going to teach like high school or junior high English mm -hmm. um, and then they had the track which really was creative writing but they called it writing intensive English which sounds very scary and it like scares off most people I know but all of us who were writing intensive English majors what we loved best about it was that the acronym was WINE <laughs> <laughs> and we took that charge very seriously so I was a wine major in yeah. college my best friend Ellen just smiled real big at that <laughs> <laughs> I mean granted we were in college so we were drinking like Franzia out of the box the box wine but we were taking ourselves very seriously the sisterhood of the box so. wine cannot be ignored yeah, yeah. there's better box wine now there than, is, than sure. there was black box uh, wine is quite good I think the, the black box one uh, it's it. in a black box probably Maybe. got scarred by the Francia. <laughs> Maybe. It's pretty good. <laughs> but so I was I was a wine major and an elementary ed major and the two sort of merged 
and made me realize that I had always had this love for kids books. Uh. Um, and when I was in college, I would go with my friends to like the independent bookstore and I would spend the first 10 or 15 minutes in the grown-up fiction section because I thought that's what an English major like had to do. Uh, and then I would slowly wander off and my friends would come find me, you know, half an hour, an hour later, and I would be in the children's book section, inevitably with piles of picture books mm -hmm. all around me. And I think that was sort of the first inkling or indication. And then I had in college a bunch of professors who none of them knew exactly what to do with this interest I had in children's books, but I was really fortunate in that they all encouraged the curiosity and you know, just sort of gave me ways to explore it. So one of them suggested that I do an internship and another suggested an independent study and I sort of found my way through it. Um, this was a different moment. Um, it was pre-Harry Potter, which really changed the landscape for children's PHP. books. PHP, yeah, it's mm. like AD, BC, and PHP. <laughs> um, and so children's books were just, you know, this tiny little field. I often say I'm not sure I would be cool enough to work in children's books if I were starting today, because there's, there's so many people who've, like, come up as kids who grew up reading Harry Potter, and, like, they basically have, you know, all of those books memorized, and... But anyways, um, I came in a, into it at a time when um, you were doing it purely for the love. I mean, you still do it that <laughs> for that reason. But so anyways, I, I had this interest and I had professors who were encouraging it. And I um, did a couple of internships in college and I figured I want to do this as a career. Um, probably coincided with I did my student teaching and I hated it. <laughs> Um, but I think I hated it because I had figured out that there was this other thing that I loved more. And You mean student teaching of children? Yes. Okay, so yeah. as an elementary ed major, I had to do a semester, like, in a classroom, like, as a teaching assistant the full time, which was great. Like, I worked with some great kids, but it didn't, like, fulfill me yeah. entirely. But I think it was because I had discovered this other thing that was making me more and more curious. Um, I'm, I am, I, so going back for a minute to when you realized you had this, the thing that kept drawing you to the children's book section, mm -hmm. uh, what what do you think that was? What, that you couldn't find in, in adult fiction? Well, one of the things that we say a lot it, when people ask us, you know, like what makes, what's the, the common thread or the denominator through it all. Um, children's books always have hope at their center. And that doesn't mean that they're not about hard things, that they're not really real. They can sometimes be very raw or very painful. Um, and we think that's important because actually kids are, are real good um, sensors for when people are trying to paint over something or, or you know, make things too easy. They're very but, truthful. Yeah, they're very, very truthful, real. and they can also smell a lie, and they can, or they can, you know, they can tell when a book is created just to teach them a lesson instead of to tell them a story. Um, but at the at the core of children's books is usually some degree of hope and I guess I guess maybe that's part of it is that I'm I'm drawn to hope mm. um which is interesting I hadn't quite thought of it in those words before beautiful yeah 
Do you, did you have favorites growing up? I did. My mom had been a classroom teacher, so we had a lot of books in the house. Um, and I am a rereader. I always think this is interesting, this question of like, are you someone who reads a book once and never comes back to it? Or are you someone who like rereads your favorites over and over? And I was a rereader as a kid, although in some ways I think it was out of necessity because I was a very fast reader. And so like I would run through my library books before we had gone back to the library. And I was like, well, I guess I just start over now. Um, but I also have books that, you know, for years I come back to as kind of comfort reads the mm -hmm. same way you have like comfort foods. Sure. Um, There's a, when I was at my parents' house in April, I was helping my parents weed through their basement of doom. And uh, I came upon a book uh, that I had when I was little, you know, it was my book. It was very small. I could fit in my hand now. Mm -hmm. uh, kind, I'll, it's upstairs. I'll show it to you. It was um, uh, Bee and uh, Kind Dog and Bee, mm -hmm. and just about a, a Irish Setter-looking dog with a hat on it and a bee and their their little adventures. And the feeling that overwhelmed me when I picked up that book was so visceral and mm -hmm. beautiful. It is like running into an old friend that you haven't seen in so long. This is my sort of accidental party trick, is anytime I meet anyone for the first time and they hear what I do, they are like required to tell me their favorite <laughs> children's book. Like you can just see it sort of rise up in them and they like have this need to tell me about it. And sometimes it's books, you know, I know very well and sometimes they're books I've never heard of. and. For some people, it's like, yeah, it's like thinking about an old friend, and there are other people who you can tell haven't thought of this book in several decades, mm -hmm. and, are, you know, it sort of transports them. I was in the theater the other day, and one of the trailers for, we just talked about this, was for uh, the House of the Clock and Its Walls. Mm -hmm. I remember a just adoring that book, and I reread that book a couple times. Undertaker's Gone Bananas, Bunicula, I think we talked about mm -hmm. Bunicula, all these and of course Charlotte's Web mm -hmm. you know all these oh my gosh Charlotte's Web is one of my earliest actual memories like you know they're the memories that your family has told you so many times that you think you remember them but Charlotte's Web is one of my earliest actual memories I was in I was about five years old um and my mother had been reading my mother had never read it so you know like often she would read things and like preview them the way parents do but for whatever reason she hadn't with this one so I don't think she knew where it was going <laughs> um and we had read like a chapter every day before nap time and we got to the ending of Charlotte's Web and we spoiler both alert. yes <laughs> sorry guys <laughs> uh we both sat on the couch sobbing oh yeah and my memory of it is that we cried so hard I didn't have to take a nap that day oh wow <laughs> because I was just so like distraught and I don't know if my mom thought like going off on my own would make it worse or whatever yeah. but so it was it was both this intense emotional experience but also uh something unusual which actually is is the secret to a lot of children's books not all of them but kids love when you take the world as they know it and turn it upside down it, and and it makes it's like their first experiences of the absurd or of like extreme silliness when you take 
something that to them feels like that is the thing that happens every day and you undo it. Like I can remember as a kid, there was one <laughs> summer and I grew up in Texas. So summers were very, very hot. And my mother who was normally like a, a meal planner and she was always concerned with like health food and stuff like that out of seemingly nowhere, I don't know, I would love to know what actually sparked this, but she decided it was so hot we were going to have milkshakes for dinner. <laughs> Sweet. And she put me and my two brothers, I'm the middle, uh, we got in the car and we drove to the grocery store and we each picked out our own like pint of ice cream. That is a moment. And came back and made milkshakes. And I, I have this memory of sitting in the back seat with my brothers and us both just kind of like looking at each all of us looking at each other just being like don't mess this up we don't understand what it is but it's awesome oh, <laughs> and we had milkshakes for dinner which had never happened before in my life it's wonderful and i remember it you yeah. know decades and decades later because yeah. it was just this turning upside down of the natural order and i think kids that's like that's why harry potter spoke to so many children and adults both i mean <laughs> I just remember sitting on the, on when, uh, I think it was, I came to Harry Potter late. My, my friend Ellen actually was the one that told me I should read them. And she cracks me up because she hasn't read them all. I devoured them, but I came in, I think the fourth one was already out or something, or maybe mm -hmm. even the fifth one. So I raced through, but, uh, you know, the first, and then the next one was coming out. And I remember being on the bus going to work reading it and every this is not hyperbole every single person on the bus was reading harry potter mm -hmm. and these were all grown-up people going to their day jobs or whatever and just enthralled in, in magic mm -hmm. in the magic of it and i challenge everyone who has read that book to not still be waiting on their owl it's and true. their letter it's true do you know the book post secret yeah, it's I that, do. It's yeah. like probably 10 or 15 years old now, yeah. like very, very early internet days yeah. where people would mail postcards to this guy, Frank, I don't remember his last name. Yeah, with, his, um, with their secrets. With their secrets. And yeah. it could be like super illustrated or not. It's and still then, going on. That Yes, I think yeah. it's it's been around forever, but he would Website, post. there's a bug in Yeah, he would post. <laughs> I uh, think I swallowed him. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, um post like 10 secrets every week or mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. uh, but eventually they made books of yeah. them and one of the secrets said something like that like I, I wait on my 13th birthday I waited all day for the owl to show up and it didn't come and you just oh you yeah. feel that yeah I think especially for children who many of us identify as being left of center or quirky or outside the norm or misfit toyed you know I was a misfit toy and I think so many kids are and so Harry being our king you know mm -hmm. in a way and in so many children's books that the misfit mm -hmm. toy is the one that triumphs the underdog story is mm -hmm. such a beautiful reminder of what could be mm -hmm. yeah something I say to people a lot is so so my job now fast forward from me sitting on <laughs> on those bookstore floors although I'm still known to do that on occasion but I moved to New York I worked first in marketing then I became an editor I thought that was the end goal and that was my dream job um, but a couple of reinventions later I'm now on the other side of the business as a literary agent so instead of being the person inside a book publisher physically working on the making and developing of 
of books. I'm working for authors and illustrators, helping manage their careers, helping them develop their new projects, helping strategize um, where they're going to spend their time, what their life as an author and illustrator looks like, pairing them with the right publisher, um, and doing sort of any number of things from the very, you know, contracts negotiation and the very business-minded things, film deals and movie deals and all the ancillary things that can come out of a book that really takes a life of its own. Um, but there's also a fair amount of, like, I always tell tell authors when I start, I told someone just this morning at a call with, with a new author I started working at with, and I was like, okay, this is the period that's going to feel really weird because I'm effectively going to have to, like, crawl inside your brain and start walking around in it to understand this story you've got going on and figure out, you know, what exactly it's trying to be so that we can make sure we get it into the hands of an editor and a publisher who really understand that. So it's this very oddly intimate thing mm -hmm. to immerse myself in someone else's creative career. Um, but so anyways, I think, you know, something something we say a lot and that, that I find myself thinking about, you were saying, you know, it's these um, misfit toys. I think we all read looking for ourselves in the story. Whether we were misfit toy, whether we weren't, whether we were a perfectionist, whether we were um, uniquely obsessed with something, like it, it kind of doesn't matter who we are, we read looking for ourselves in stories. And that's when we're kids, certainly. You know, we read either to see like who can we be, um, or sometimes we read to make sure things are going to be okay. Mm. Um, or we read to understand the life we haven't lived yet. I grew up very sort of sheltered and overprotected. And so I was always really drawn to stories where kids go places I had never gone before. And in, in many ways, I feel like books were some of the earliest traveling I did. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, we took the same summer vacation almost every year to visit my grandparents. We even stopped at the same Denny's halfway <laughs> from between Texas and Pennsylvania. You know, and I mean, thinking about it now, I'm like, okay, of course, we could only drive a certain number of, of days. So it logically made sense. But as a kid, it felt like my life had a lot of sameness and books were the escape and the thing that let me imagine how do other people live. Mm -hmm. um, it is interesting how we lose that in, as adults, that idea that you can look at this character or maybe several characters in a book and either see yourself or see your possibilities. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, we forget that magic too, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Uh. And I think it's a big part of part of why I believe children's books are really important is they teach kids empathy. Yes. They they teach us that everyone has a story and that one story isn't more important than another story. And they um Yeah, they help they help us learn how to be human is really if you if you boil it all the way down that's why I do the work I do. That's why I believe in it so ferociously mm -hmm. is I think books teach kids how to be human and hey, human. <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about. You know, I think um, it's too late when someone's an adult to teach them how to be empathetic, to teach them to see. I'm um, trying not to give up hope for that. 
I think people are right. I should probably. I think, <laughs> that might no, have been a little hyperbole. No, getting no, away no. From you're, me. you're welcome to to believe that for sure. But but for me, I I I think that it's in all of us the 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 potential, the possibility. There's yes. flickers of it. It happens. You know, in times of war, or in times of flooding, or in times yes. of this. Suddenly. No, I didn't really mean that. I I think like we all have the capacity for transformation. We all have the capacity to um, reinvent. But I think it's it's harder mm -hmm. to be open to mm -hmm. possibilities. True. It's harder to true. want to learn to see the world in a very different way than we have come to know it. It's hard to read and not see the universe yeah in ourselves and in, yeah. in the universe i mean it really is is and i think you spoke to that earlier there's uh, a writer who is being truthful about that i've read bad books i don't mm -hmm. finish bad books i don't mm -hmm. waste my time with them but um but then one man's bad book. Well, I was just going to say one one person's bad book yeah. for someone else is the book that changed everything. Isn't that so fascinating? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's so many books. I always say the books that that I find most appealing um, are books that walk this line. And again, I, I tell this to pretty much every writer I work with at some point in the process. I think every book walks this line between the specific and the universal. Mm. It has to be specific enough that we we remember it. We feel like if we walked past the main character on the street, we would recognize them and call them by name and they would turn around. Um, so you need that specificity. If you don't have that, it's like a rom-com where like everything just feels interchangeable. But you also need this sense of universality to where it resonates and it speaks to a 12-year-old in Iowa as much as it speaks to a 9-year-old in Florida, as much as it maybe speaks to, you know, a 25-year-old in Washington or someone in another country entirely if they're reading it in translation. And so I think every book does this sort of dance between the two and the work of an author actually is feeling figuring out what's the right balance for this story of the specific and universal and some people say you find your way into universality through the specific um but i tend to look for a balance between the two um yeah when you were editing mm -hmm. uh what were some of the Foibles. What, what were some of the things that you would notice that writers would get into traps? Because I think that a, a great editor is mm -hmm. a magical thing, wonderful <laughs> thing. I've said ma magic. If for those of you playing at home, this is going to be a drinking game, apparently, because I've now said magic 800 times. And we're not even drinking. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what do you think is some of the more common pitfalls for yeah. writers as well, an editor? So, so as an editor, I think a lot of people misunderstand what that means. Um, my job wasn't to be like a copy editor whose job is to correct grammar or, you know, change like a period into a comma. I was doing much more of the developmental work. And so helping an author... Um, it's really the work of helping an author take the vision of this story that's alive in their head and what they've managed to get down onto paper and figure out how do we shrink the space between those two. Like, how do we get the full thing that's in your head onto the pages? And 
as an editor, I always felt like my most important job, like as an as a literary agent now, my job is to be the advocate for the author, for the illustrator. Like they're my client. My job is to um, help prioritize their needs in the publishing process. But as an editor, you know, the sort of obvious thing would be like, okay, if that's the job of a literary agent to advocate for the author, then the job of an editor is probably to advocate for the publishing house, for the company. And yes, technically that is what I got a salary for, but I always really thought of that job as my job was to be advocate for the reader. And so I was thinking about, you know, where is this getting boring? Where is it getting redundant? What's going to be the moment where a reader might put this book down and walk away from it and think I can come back to this later because I want to get rid of those moments. I want them to stay up till three in the morning reading instead. Um, so what that means on a practical level for authors is sometimes taking the ego out of it. Um, on pretty much every manuscript, you know, and this is sort of an ongoing joke with some of the writers I've worked with, you know, I'd, I'd write in the margins, like, you're trying too hard to be writerly. Like, there are moments where, you know, a writer's trying to write, like, very eloquent, beautiful, like, what we think a writer should be writing. Um, these flowery sort of sentences that are often either not a match for the character's actual voice that you're writing, or they don't fit, you know, that kind of flowery writing that thoughtful, beautiful moment doesn't actually fit if, like, the world's collapsing around you. Like, you don't stop and stand, you know, on on a rock as everything's collapsing <laughs> around you and notice the colors of the sky and the smell of the air or whatever it is. And so, you know, as as an editor, my job is to help the writers be willing to let go of those moments um, and really prioritize the ones that move the story forward, that move the character's trajectory um, of their story forward. And so, yeah, I, I often say when you're reading and there's one of those passages where it's kind of the writer going, look at me, I'm a writer, I can make beautiful words. It pulls you up out of the story. It's like mm -hmm. like you're in a swimming pool mm -hmm. and it pulls you up out of, like from under the water and like your head breaks above the surface. And then the writer has to do all the work of getting you back submerged into the story. And rarely is that flowery passage worth that work of like pulling up and putting back down into the water See, it's I like when you're watching a movie and you're instead of seeing the movie story and the characters within you're seeing the actor playing the character yeah and, and, and you're seeing the writer's hands I, or yeah or whatever and and you want to be lost i i use this I, i'm sure i've used this several times on the show it's but the example of um jamie fox as uh ray charles mm -hmm. in the movie ray that there were uh, i was so lost in his performance of of him being ray charles that i actually forgot that it was jamie fox yeah 100 forgot and that's what you want and at the end i was like oh wait a minute i forgot that was it was so compelling and I was so engrossed in the story. Yeah. Magic. Magic. <laughs> Magic. And a damn good editor. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Film a, editing is And an author who's, who's willing, thing. or a creator who's willing to take the ego out of it. To take, you know, in that case, to take everything, every foible that his, 
his own personality and put it aside in service of the yes. storytelling. In service is a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so like when when I say that, you know, the the work of an editor is is advocating for the reader. That's really what it is. You're fighting for the reader's experience of the story and deciding that that is even more important than the writer feeling good about the beautiful passage that they wrote late one night, you know, with Microsoft Word open, feeling writerly. <laughs> what would be your advice to someone who is writing um, for children or young mm -hmm. adult? There's a big difference between the two. There I, is a difference. So let's, let's, let's take it to the young adults. Mm-hmm in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so young adults, um, we, we tend to call that category readers um, ages, say, 14 and up. Although, you know, sometimes you have a precocious even 10 or 12 year old who wants to get into those books. Um, and then the readership actually goes all the way up. You know, we that's been one of the interesting things as the category of young adult, which is a very um, young category of books. They didn't really exist more than the last 20 or 25 years um the way we know them now um oh i could give you a whole children's book well, I mean, history I lesson uh, but the book thief for example <laughs> mm -hmm. is Ma uh, marcus zucker Z zucker zucker how do you say his last zuzar name? zuzar well, no zuzak zuzak <laughs> no one in publishing judge me <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that out no. <laughs> um, so perfection always um humanity always uh humanity uh, always. when uh, that that i know that book was intended for young adult it even has mm -hmm. a sticker on it that says so um my god it is a beautiful book it is I, I'm, you know, I'm a word person. I love reading. I love writing. Mm -hmm. That book, to me personally, was poetry in motion. Mm -hmm. I did not see the movie because mm -hmm. I was so enthralled by the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about all the young adult, adult books I've read that I adore. I think because young adult books are a younger category. Um, there's been room for them to be a little more daring. It's like when any new art form springs up. At first, people pay it no mind, which is actually the moment like where people aren't thinking about what can this be? What will it do for us? They're just kind of like, sure, do your thing over there in that weird corner that no one quite understands. And so we've had this very... Um, sort of golden era of people in many ways doing more interesting experimental writing than in any other category where the rules are so firm and so set. And the interesting thing about children's books is, and in particular in young adult, is what we've basically done is taken all of these other categories from around the bookstore that, you know, so like you go into the bookstore and there's a fantasy section. You go into the bookstore and there's a science fiction section or a graphic novel section or a horror section or a historical fiction. And it's like we've taken all of those categories into young adult and said, okay, what does paranormal romance mean in the context of young adult books? And what do young adult books mean in the context of paranormal romance? And so a book that you're going to see in any of these categories that's a young adult book, it's got a different influence and it's got a different purpose than the books on the adult shelves. Mm -hmm. um, and if, if it doesn't, then it belongs really in that section. Um, but, you know, and some of that comes back to, you know, that idea of hope being essential. Um, 
and some of it has to do with the the way the story is being told a lot of times adult books about young characters are told from this very nostalgic point of view this looking back with a sense of knowingness or a sense of now that I'm self-actualized I'm going to reflect on my life but that's not what young adult books are young adult books are about first experiences and being in the immediacy of emotions and um big questions or well, sacrifices. Yeah, I think about Rumblefish or The Outsiders or Judy Bloom's books mm -hmm. or, you know, Essie Hinton, uh, you know. That. Who many people would say was one of the first young adult writers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Or Beverly Cleary, really. I mean, some of those, I mean, it's kind I of... I don't call that younger. young adult so much. That's yeah, more that's, a children's book. Yeah, I guess. But didn't didn't she have a couple that sort of towed the line? She may, she may, I think you're thinking of Judy Bloom. Who's yeah, Judy Bloom for sure. She wrote for Forever. I remember yeah. Being in seventh grade and reading *Forever* by Judy <laughs> Blue and just being like, "Oh my God!" Everyone does. Yeah. <laughs> and I had a, my locker mate in junior high and seventh grade. His name was Ralph, something or other, uh, yeah. and that was the the spoiler alert. You couldn't penis. even so look at it. Yeah, I was like, "Oh my God, he's reading under a penis." What? Uh, a friend of mine went to a book signing with. Judy Bloom, and she's someone who works in publishing, so she's around authors all the time, not starstruck in the least, but got up to, you know, the front of the line with her book to have it signed, and looked at Judy, and burst into tears. <laughs> and apparently Judy Bloom took it very much in stride and said, it's okay, dear, women your age always cry when they meet me. Aww, I love it. <laughs> and I thought, what a weird reality that must be, yeah. to be Judy Bloom. And to have, like, 30-year-old, 40-year-old women burst into tears every time they meet you. Like, what does that feel like? Guys, let's see. Well, who wrote Frankie and Zoe? Or Zoe? Uh, Was that Judy Blair? Franny and Zoe? Franny and Zoe. No. Who wrote that? Do you remember? Oh, I remember reading it in college. I do. I remember reading it in high school, but I don't remember who wrote it. See, how would yeah. be? We'll edit that in. And act <laughs> like we know. No, Not kidding. actually a young adult book, either. It wasn't? Mm -mm. Was it an adult book? Mm -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. I was so ahead of my time. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> but that's because the category didn't exist in the way even when you and I were that age. It was a much thinner category. It's become mm -hmm. a lot more robust over the last 20 years. Sure. I mean, you and I were in high school five minutes ago, right? Of course. <laughs> with with uh, old Ralphie. <laughs> he was cute. Too. I had a crush on him. Anyway. I had a crush on everyone. Those were the days. That's uh, kind of what young adult books are all, all about. All about. Know. You know, it's funny, though. My parents moved, um, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And I went home to, like, clear out a bunch of stuff. And I stumbled across this box of... It was mostly the notes that my friends and I passed back and forth in high school that I had saved some journals to. Um, and, you know, I'd been working at this point in children's books for, I don't know, at least five, seven, ten years. And I thought I really remembered what it was like to be in high school. And then I started reading all these notes and I started uh, reading these journals and it was this visceral feeling. And you just, it's so easy to forget that point in time where it's not that like every week is the best or the worst moment of your life. It's not that <laughs> every well day <laughs> is the best moment or worst moment of your life. It's every hour, every minute oh, yeah. is the highest high or the lowest low you've oh, ever so encountered. And there's so 
much emotion and there's so many micro decisions that turn into macro decisions and so much like negotiating of there's a lot of check yes or no's <laughs> happening <laughs> and may, yes no or check, maybe so yes or no's and deciding who you are and yeah yeah i stumbled stuff. across some of those at my parents house a long long time ago and my best friend jill in high school she and i looking back on this stuff she and i would write full panel cartoons about people in our school hmm. that that and we would just enact mm -hmm. these crazy plays uh, or people we met at parties on the weekends or whatever mm -hmm. and going back and looking at those oh they were so much fun mm -hmm. we had got into mischief a lot of mischief and so that mischief always found their way into but I mean full paneled cartoon storylines about the adventures of being a teenager mm -hmm. craziness it was just funny what the things that mattered so intently back then Still matter. <laughs> <laughs> Still matter, damn it. Oh well. That's true. So okay, as a as an agent now, um, I assume you probably get a lot of people tweeting at which by the way, what's your Twitter and Instagram and things like that that people can find you. Yeah. But how uh, <laughs> if if I'm writing a children's story and I think, My God, I'm a genius or maybe I don't think I'm a genius, but I think oh, this is pretty good. How do I get in touch with somebody like you what's the steps well so um my social media my uh twitter handle is molly underscore o'neill um that's m-o-l-l-y underscore o-n-e-i-l-l uh because i got on twitter at the like very early stages when we were all making our twitter handles look like email addresses <laughs> so we have that underscore in there now I wish I could get rid of it but I'm verified and I'd like lose that if if I changed it everywhere else I'm Molly O'Neill books so on Instagram that's also my website um, I think that's even my Facebook um, so if you're a writer so the first thing you need to do if you're a writer who wants to have a book published on a very practical level um, is that you need to write the book um, you know uh, I can't sell an idea unless you are a certain class of person that either is a celebrity um, or uh, has an enormous following to where there are people out in the world ready to buy anything you create. But for the average human uh, in the world, the first thing is you have to finish you have to write and you have to finish the book um, because I can't sell an idea and I also can't sell a possibility which is really what the early chapters of a book are um, it's a lot easier to start a book than to finish it oh, and it's man, <laughs> a lot easier to start it um, than to nail the ending which is part of what we're looking for right like not just can you get to the ending but can you achieve satisfactorily the things that you set out to do you know in many ways the beginning of a book is a promise you're making to a reader did you fulfill that promise by the end of the book so we have to have the whole thing at least with fiction i work mostly with fiction it's different with nonfiction. um there a lot of times what is being created is a book proposal and so before you go off and do like three years of research on some topic you're basically getting a publisher interested and sometimes investing in that mm -hmm. um but with a novel you have to basically prove that you can do it before anyone invests in it um 
picture books are a little different as well. A lot of people think you have to have the art and the words to get anywhere. Um, if you're an illustrator and a writer, then you can do both parts. But if you're just a writer, um, then you submit just your words. And the publisher's job is to find the illustrator. So I, I run into a lot of people at writers conferences or things like that who think like, oh, I'm going to get my um, neighbor's sister-in-law who's a fine artist to illustrate it. That's not usually a good idea or very productive. Um, partly because there are a lot of different kinds of art and what works best for picture books is illustration. We need art that shows energy and movement and narrative motion. And so that's a very particular kind of art and also that is kid friendly. Um, so, you know, the neighbor's sister-in-law might do beautiful still lifes, but that isn't appealing to a kid audience. So, um, Anyways, usually what people are looking for is an agent who's the one who gets their work in front of publishers, and there's a, a variety of ways you can meet agents at uh, writers' conferences. You don't have to go to those, but it can be a good place if you're looking to kind of find your people who are other creatives like you. Light writing can be art making of any kind can be a little bit of a lonely profession. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, conferences can be a good place to find other people um, who are trying to do the same thing you are and sort of share some of those highs and lows. Um, but you don't have to. I know, especially for some people, that's a cost prohibitive thing. And we want any kind of creator to be able to get their work out into the world. So, um, I have submission guidelines on my website of how people go about submitting to me the very particular process. Other agents have slightly different permission um, submissions guidelines on their website. There's, you know, the internet is your friend in this case. Um, some people choose to self-publish because they want sort of control over the whole process. That didn't used to be. Um, as easy to do, but today it's a very viable option. And for some people that's, um, that's the right choice. You know, it, it kind of boils down to what are you trying to achieve? And I mean, of course, we'd all love like a bag of money to fall in our laps and, you know, uh, instant fame. That rarely happens. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even, I think this is a big misconception actually about books and publishing is that, um, you know, we hear these stories of like, oh, this author dreamed the story and wrote it, or, you know, this author became an instant success. And in truth, most of the time, an instant success has been like a decade in the making. It's just that we work in an industry that's very good at packaging stories. Yeah. And so either there becomes a boiled down version of the story that people hear over and over because no one really wants to hear about the 10 years of, you know, trying to write this story in between raising your children or working a day job or whatever. And so even the writers tend to sort of skip over those and only start the story at the moment that they feel like people are interested in hearing. I met this guy, Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Quirky> <laughs> <fella>. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Just, I, I think um, if you feel like you're uh, only hearing stories about how easy success is, you're probably not hearing the whole story in any field, not just writing. I oh, think that's yeah. true, especially in any creative field. Creative fields, for sure. It takes 20 years to be an overnight success. Yes. 
What uh, books are blowing your hair back right now? Hmm. So the funny thing about working in publishing is I'm a time traveler. So the books I'm working on most intently right now are books that the public isn't going to get to see until like 2020, 2021. That's um, how long it takes. Especially wow. if you're working on illustrated books. Mm. Yeah. Um, the the book the traditional publishing process is slow so yeah there was there was one year in fact where you know I spend so much of my time thinking about life three years out that one year I mailed all my Christmas cards and wished people a happy like one year ahead <laughs> of what I don't remember what year it was but I was like happy 2012 and people wrote back and were like or 2011 oh, <laughs> you know That's happy hilarious. new year um <laughs> Yeah, uh, one of one of the uh, the risks of the business, but. Um so I started agenting just a couple of years ago, which means that the first books that I sold as an agent uh, into this slow process are just now starting to hit the shelves. Um, and so I published a book called The Creativity Project by an educator who was really interested in how authors and illustrators and other creators creative people get their ideas um, and he felt like he works with elementary school aged kids he's taught third grade and fifth grade and um, he made a really interesting comment to me he said you know when kids are like in kindergarten and first grade and you ask a, a class of students who here's an artist or who here's a writer every kid raises their hand and by third or fourth grade you ask that same group of kids that question and they all kind of look at the one kid or the two kids mm -hmm. who sort of become known as like, that's the one who's the good artist. That's the one who's the good writer. And nobody else claims it anymore. And so he's really interested in like, how do we hold on to that identity of creativity? And um, he's someone who knows a lot of writers and illustrators. So he put together this kind of interesting anthology where um, authors and illustrators gave prompts to inspire each other. Um, and it's kind of a look at where do ideas come from and then at the end each of these and these are famous authors you know many that have won awards and prizes and are well known and they all write prompts for the reader to use as well so it's this sort of living breathing thing where it's a book that's you can read as a reader but it's also a book you can use as a writer which is really exciting or a teacher sounds like as a teacher in a classroom certainly um, so that was really exciting that's called the creativity project it's edited by Colby Sharp um, didn't didn't you discover a very famous now famous book? <laughs> I did. So when I was an editor, the second book I ever um, acquired, so brought on to be published by the company, uh, was a little book called Divergent, uh, which went on to have quite an exciting life. Um, and it was amazing. It was uh, a couple of years of really intense work. But it was really exciting. The author was young. I was a young editor. Uh, the agent was also young. And so we all kind of um, went through it together. And um, it taught me a lot about what it looks like when all parts of a company like a publishing house are working in synergy to sort of like, how does something like that become a hit it's because there are literally hundreds of invisible hands mm -hmm. propping it up um and all doing their part to make it work um 
ideally would love for every book to have that experience. But, you know, that was a book that it, it was that great example of the specific and the universal. Um, and when, when you read it, did, did you, were you? Yes. So I knew I wanted a book like this. Um, when I acquired that book, we were still in the tail end of the paranormal everything post-Twilight. YA publishing in particular has been very trend-driven over the last 10 or 15 years. So I wasn't a paranormal reader. I didn't raise myself reading paranormal romance. So those stories never quite resonated with me. And I had figured out as a ambitious young editor that if I wanted to like make my mark, um, that I had to do something I actually really understood and cared about, not just what was popular. And so I, I finally started telling the agents who are the ones that bring projects to editors and put them in front of them. Um, I said, you know, there are plenty of other editors who do the paranormal romance thing really well. What I'm really interested in, we weren't even using the term dystopian, which got so popular later. Um, but we, we didn't even have that as a category yet. I said, I'm really interested in speculative things, things that take our world and skew it. And whether it skews it, you know, 60 degrees is a totally different story than a story that takes our world and skews it like 182 degrees. You know, like there's all these different versions of what could happen. Um, and so I got a lot of submissions um, in that vein, most of which weren't quite right for me. A lot of them were kind of, why retellings of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, when you say why for everyone that's young, right? Young adult. Young adult, okay. Young why adult. You, yeah, you we, should have, we should have defined that a long well, time why, ago. Well, YA, but you've been saying why, so I didn't know if that was like... Oh, I third. think I've just been blurring it. Oh, okay. Why. Okay, got yeah. it, got it, got it. Yeah, that's, that's my like weird southern no, northern okay. accent happening. No, okay, I just wanted to make sure. I thought maybe it was another <laughs> delineation, so... No, okay, no, YA. Um, so anyways, I had seen some different projects sort of in this space. And then this one came across my desk and the agent actually did her job well. She called me and she said, I think I have the book that you're talking about. Um, and so I took it home that night. Uh, this was in the very earliest days of e-readers. I read it on my Sony e-reader, <laughs> um, which was like, you'd push a button and you'd wait like 20 seconds for the page to turn. <laughs> it was so, uh, it seems so retro now. But anyways, I, I started reading it on the subway. This is 2009. Um, I started reading it on the subway. And at that time, our offices were at 55th Street. And by 33rd Street, I kind of had goosebumps of like, oh, this is really good writing. Um, which doesn't happen very often. It was enough that, you know, I sort of noticed it. But at the same time, you try to not get your hopes up too high too fast as an editor, because there's a lot of ways that something can fall apart. And you have to, you have to know, are the ways it's falling apart something that I know how to fix? Or is this not actually ready to be published yet? Um, so anyways, I, I was in from page one. And part of it was, it was this very immediate voice. Um, part of it was this character has grown up in a very restricted environment and the language the author was using in those early pages really reflected that. And then as her world got bigger, her, the way she spoke got bigger. And to me, that kind of control over writing showed like a sophistication 
to the writing. Um, but then the plot was just great. And so by the time, so at that time, my commute into Brooklyn from, from Manhattan probably took about 45 minutes. And there is this one period where the subway would go above ground um, for like, two minutes maybe and that's when everybody would whip out their cell phone and like text or whatever and so in that like two minutes going over the bridge into Brooklyn I canceled my dinner plans so that I could keep reading and <laughs> I got to Brooklyn and I went to this little like wine bar slash coffee shop and I kept reading uh, and I read until last call and I went home and finished the book at about 4 a.m. Um, and was just completely absorbed. And because it was that thing I had been, lo been looking for of this is a story that so many people can connect with. And this is a story that, you know, the heart of the story for those who haven't read it is that there um, it's it's a post-apocalyptic sort of world and the oh I used to be able to rattle this off by heart but it's been a while let's see if I can do it no spoilers. Uh, <laughs> so so there are five factions everyone is born into one of five factions and your faction uh, determines everything about your life the work you'll do the people you spend time with um, your attitude toward the world. Kind of like Mockingjay. That came later, of course, right? The uh, so The Hunger Games was published first, oh, okay. um, although they overlapped a lot. So a lot of people would read them now and think, oh, Divergent was just kind of imitating The Hunger Games. But actually, they were sort of being co-created at the same time. Hunger Games was a little bit ahead, um, but not so far ahead that I would say it was derivative in any way. I think just sometimes... We end up in these zeitgeisty moments where a lot of people are pondering the same sort of questions. Well, I think I think creation hangs in the air and we yes. pull it down, you know. Yes. And and that is another reason to if you have it in your head and I I need to take my own advice with this, if it's in your head, create it because if you don't, somebody else will grab that nugget mm -hmm. from the sky or mm -hmm. you know, the universal flow. Yeah, yeah. Um who is it that talks about that in, in Big Magic? Um mm. is that uh, Elizabeth Gilbert? Elizabeth Gilbert's book on creativity. We got one right. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> <laughs> she she talks about that. Um, in the case of Divergent, actually, I think some of the inspiration, so Veronica was a, a young author when she wrote it, and she had grown up in the Harry Potter era. She was one of those kids who waited every year for the next book to come out. Like, she grew up with Harry. And, you know, that, that story, yeah. the Sorting Hat. Exactly. So I think the Sorting Hat sort of re-manifested itself sure. in this faction system where sure. you have to choose are you going to stay with the faction that you were born with, which means also staying with your family, with all the people you know and love, or because you don't know if you fit it that well, if if the way that you want to be in the world is not aligned with your faction, are you going to choose to leave everything and choose a different faction? It's the hero's journey, purpose? always, and that goes back for as far as you can remember. And to me, when I read that, I thought, wow, that resonates, you know, if you're 16 and choosing, you know, who are you going to go to prom with? It resonates when you're deciding... Where are you going to go to college? But it also resonates like to much older um, readers as well. You know, we can all look back at a couple of points in our life and go like, oh, that was the choice that I made. 
that had ripple effects into everything else. And to me, that was what made that book so compelling <laughs> and made me stay up until four in the morning yeah. reading it. There is nothing like that experience, too. I think there's, uh, on, on my hand, I can count The Book Thief. I stayed up from uh -huh. morning until the middle of the night, finished that in one day. Memoirs of a Geisha, uh -huh. same. Jurassic Park, uh -huh. extraordinary book. Um, and I know there's a couple others as well, but those are the three that come to mind right away. Mm -hmm. Where you're just absolutely in and you're, you're in not it. going anywhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would like to think that, that many of the books I work on yeah. will give, if not Stranger you, that reading that experience, they'll give someone that yeah. reading experience. And that's, um, that's some of the magic for me is that I get to be one of the very first people sometimes that's... Uh, that gets to read those books and then gets to watch everyone else have that so experience. So if we were in a book club, what would you be telling our listeners right now? What should they go out and try? What should they go out and try? Um, a little something for everyone. How about three books that you can... That I've They don't on? have to necessarily be your clients. They can okay. be, but, you know. Oh, this is hard. <laughs> um, you should have warned me. <laughs> So one of my clients' books that has just come out in uh, the last few weeks, which I think is an important book and uh, a lovely book, is called Darius the Great is Not Okay. It's by a debut author named Adib Karam. Uh, he's an Iranian-American author, and um, this book is about a biracial teenager. Um, it's based loosely, or not loosely, on his own life. It has some some ripples back into his own life. Uh, but this is a character who has never quite fit in anywhere, and part of that is because he um, feels like he has a foot in different worlds. He calls himself a fractional Persian. His mother is Persian, his father is American, and he's never quite fit anywhere because of it. And pretty quickly into the story, um, the his mother finds out that her father back in Iran is very ill, and so the family over spring break goes to Iran for the first time. And so for our main character, it's this really interesting journey um, where he's going to meet people who he both dearly loves and knows nothing about. And it's that, you know, stranger in a strange land feeling of, you know, these are people who I only know through a screen, but somehow they know me better than anyone I've ever met. And um, I feel more myself with them than maybe I ever have, but also this is temporary and I'm gonna have to go back to my own life soon, so I better not get too attached. Um, and then into all of this comes the boy next door who um, is about his age and really it's a story of the first time you encounter a friend who uh, sees you for exactly who you are and all your nerdiness and Darius is a nerdy nerdy character delightfully so he's never met a Star Trek reference he doesn't want to make he's never met a Lord of the Ring reference he doesn't want to make he's obsessed with tea of all things um, but this friend Sohrab accepts him and embraces him for who he is and I think we can all think of those people in our lives where you know you meet them and you just sort of know like this is someone who's going to be important in my life. This is someone who's going to be a part of my life. In fact, as I'm looking at you, I'm thinking about this because you and I met um, 
standing in line for a taco truck of That's all right. things. And about, it started to rain. And, and I, it started to rain and you had an umbrella. I had forgotten yeah. that part. And he said, come under the umbrella. And we were at a conference, but we had, we had not been sitting next to each other or anything it was complete strangers and yet i feel like there was something yeah like we'd know each other forever yeah but you have to make that first you know like come under the umbrella moment you come know under the umbrella moment and you're really good at that i mean that's sort of what this whole podcast is is your come under the umbrella moment so anyways darius the great is not okay is is a story that um if you are someone who has grown up biracial or Iranian, I think it has a particular resonance because there aren't enough of those stories. But what's been really interesting as the books sort of found its way out into the world is almost everyone feels like a divided self in some way or another. We're all little aliens. We're all little aliens. You know, I think of myself, I grew up in the South, but I live in the, in the East Coast and I've always felt this tension between the two, you know, and I think we all have these internal tensions of like, which self am I? And will people accept me if I am my truest self? And maybe and more so as an adult, who knows? I mean, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. does it ever go away? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. We, we are, all, we are, <laughs> are continually becoming, yes. obviously. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I think we all, that, that little us inside that, you know, Nanu Nanu. <laughs> I don't know that it ever goes away. We are all sort of constantly telling ourselves the stories of ourselves. Yeah. Um, or running from them. Or running from them. Or learning how to rewrite them. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. embracing other people's stories as our own, which is a big thing. I have a, I have a big um, canvas on the wall in my office. Um, with the saying on it that I love that says um, to be a human is to have a story to tell and that is one of <laughs> that's my practically my catchphrase <laughs> every human has a story but it's, yeah, it's, true. it's true and we have many it's true course, many stories and and we don't always take enough time to hear them or understand that our story can connect to someone else's story mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um and I think that's some of the, the beauty of, of the work that I do is that hopefully we're creating books that make it easier for kids to find those connections and to understand other people. But also, like, I'm learning about myself. Like, I'm an overgrown kid who's, who's learning and relearning these different different lessons myself yeah. quite often. How about one more book to recommend that an adult might read that's in the YA category mm -hmm. that you think? So that one I mentioned actually is um, is a YA category book that I think adults might enjoy And I'll put well. links to all this on the HeyHumanPodcast.com. Yeah. Um, let me think what else... So many of the books that I've been immersed in. Um, I enjoyed the sci-fi trio you yes, recommended. Yes, so uh, a trilogy that I worked on. Not everybody's on. into sci-fi, but yeah, I am. But for those who are, um, and this is accessible sci-fi. It's yeah. grounded in like our our world still. Um, that's a, a, tr a trilogy that starts with a book called Insignia um, by an author named S.J. Kincaid. Uh, and that is... Um, 
sort of a near sci-fi, a little bit in the vein of Ender's Game. I would say um, so, yeah. Very funny. I often uh, say that one of the things I love best in a story is the trope of Band of Misfits becomes a family. Yeah. Uh, and I would say that that's very much what that trilogy is. It was fun. It was a fun read. I very much enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what other books should people read? Um, How about for those who aren't into sci-fi and aren't into... Yeah. Maybe the so this isn't a book that I um, have anything to do with. Okay. I wasn't the editor. I wasn't the agent. Uh, but it's an adult book, which I also only read those every so often. But really, really enjoyed. And I think for anyone who's interested in... Um, well, anything like words or language or creativity, but also in weird little niche worlds. Um, so this book is called Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. And it's by a woman named oh. Corey Stamper, who um, for many years worked for Merriam-Webster. And so she talks about like how words get defined and that our language is this living, breathing thing and what it, you know, we all just think of the dictionary being this static thing, but it's not at all. It grows constantly. And yeah. it grows as our culture grows and changes. Yeah. Um, and so she talks um, in the most, like, nerdily delightful way about what that experience is like. Interesting. Um, so that it was a really engaging read and, you know, made me want to, like, give up everything and run away and go back to school and be a be a linguist yeah. <laughs> um so that was that was a nice sort of like vicarious living by the way uh the, the couple dictionary twitter accounts are the best dictionary mm-hmm. twitter account is great and so is the Mary Webster. Mm-hmm. i have account. a client who's working on a book it won't be out until next year um may of 2019 i believe is when it's coming out but it's called the dictionary of difficult words and the author is, um, she works for dictionary.com, actually. So okay. uh, I've got my own yeah. <laughs> lexicographer uh, on my client list. And she has written this book, uh, and it's beautifully illustrated by, uh, her name is Jane Solomon. And the illustrator is Louise Lockhart, and it's coming from Quarto Books next spring. Um, and it's a, it's a book of um, definitions of words, most of which an adult wouldn't have even encountered, but definitely most eight or nine-year-olds haven't encountered. And so with a certain kind of like really nerdy kid, they're going to take so much delight in learning these words and then going and inserting them into conversations. And um, yeah, that's been really fun to sort of watch come come into creation. Um, yeah, I could tell you a whole lot more. Maybe I'll give you a reading list. Sure, and your, I'd happily put it on the, yeah, on the website. On the website. Yeah, um, that'd be wonderful. That would be a lot of fun. Um, I'll tell you one more. I don't think I've even told you about this book, but uh, coming in February of 2019 so not too far off is a book called song for a whale um, which is a middle grade book we didn't even talk about middle grade books so much but they are um, the books that you read in like fourth fifth sixth grade and they're really important because that is the age for a lot of readers when you you've become a fully independent reader so you're not you're not stymied by the very act of reading anymore like you can become totally absorbed in a story. Um, Undertaker's Gone Bananas, fifth grade. <laughs> yeah, Sixth and grade. like you've, you've got a confidence about reading that you didn't have maybe even two years before. Right. Um, 
you've figured out what you like and what you don't like. Um, so it reading feels very personal at that age. And that's the age where kids really turn into readers. Like if you don't learn to love reading at that age, it's a lot harder to pick it up later. It's almost like, why would you decide to be a reader later? I mean, you can, it's sort of like we were talking about, like, can you change later? You can, but it's harder, right? Mm -hmm. um, so books that are really engaging for that age audience, um, we call them middle grade, or MG um, for short, is is really important and kind of the lifeblood of creating like a literate society. Sure, <laughs> um, which is pretty important. Are in the people grand still reading books? Do you think, or in the in the general scheme, is are books being read? I know a lot of people. My parents they love the digital, which I won't. I'm such. I'm a book sniffer. Mm -hmm. I love feeling the book. Mm -hmm. It's the tactile everything to me. I have read a couple books that people have sent me for interviews or whatever that mm -hmm. I've read um, on online, Electronically. but it's not my favorite. I want to hold yeah, a book. Yeah, I think, you know, we had a couple of years where people got really excited about, like, these new uh, digital Nooks objects, and Nooks sure. and Kindles, and um, and there's certainly moments um, and lifestyles where it matters. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who travels a lot, I love Audible. it is way easier. Yeah, Audible is great as well. Um, or audiobooks. So, like, there, there are different kinds of readings that sort of match different lifestyles better. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of, like, business books get rid on a digital device because, you know, so often the people reading those are, like, on, on airplane. airplanes or, you know. But for kids, what's been interesting, um, you know, we have a fair number of people reading young adult books on devices. We have some people reading um, younger books, but increasingly, you know, parents have concern about, like, screen time for their kids. Sure. Um, and so they will often tell their kid, actually, like, don't be on the computer or the tablet or whatever. Go read a book instead. And so, um, and I think kids, you know, spend a lot of time on screens in school, too. So sometimes a book feels um, a little bit more escapist, escapist yeah. than, you mm -hmm. know, less like homework. And then, you know, when you have a younger age kid, I mean, you can read a picture book on a tablet, but it's... It's not the same experience. If you got a kid on your lap and you're reading them, you know, bedtime story or uh, whatever, like you want the tactile thing most yeah, of the time. For sure. Um, so I think for kids' books, we've um, it's been important to sort of learn these new formats and and figure out how to adapt to them. But if anything, I think the result has been that we've started to pay more attention to making books beautiful tactile things because we've realized for people to want to spend their money on them the cover matters even more than it once did and the whole package and the you know the beautiful um you know interior art or uh typography and stuff like people people want book as object in a different way mm -hmm. um which you know is has made more beautiful books so yeah win amen. win win so molly o'neill friend thank you for being on hey human <laughs> thank you for having me it was really in it was very interesting i you know a lot of stuff i didn't know and just it's just fun to talk about books yeah, I can talk a lot about books. I love that. I hope I haven't made your readers, or your, your, readers? <laughs> your readers. I, I think of the whole world They're as readers. readers. I know. <laughs> or listeners. Or listeners, or readers. Uh, I hope I didn't talking. nerd well, out Who knows? Much, Maybe we excited but. someone into picking up a book. You never know. That would be great. And if again, you I'm, picked up a book or because of this podcast, you should tweet at us and tell us. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. I want to know what you're reading. Yeah. Or what your kids are reading. Yeah. 
And I'll, again, I'll put the links to everything um, on the on the HeyHumanPodcast.com so that you can find all these. So good. I'm so happy. I love books. I love words. I love you. I love you. <laughs> I love tacos. And I do love thunderstorms. I like all those things. And, and dogs. And cats. And milkshakes. Milkshakes. Milkshakes are good. Get down with milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being on the show. It's awesome. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget, lots of great links uh, for these books that we talked about on the links page. And take a moment, go to iTunes and rate and review Hey Human. Thank you so much. Bye.